0: morning, everybody. Okay, now, seeing it's my birthday, I feel entitled to tell you a story about an imaginary birthday party. I want you to cast your minds back. For some of us, a long time back. For others, not that far back. Cast your mind back to when you were about eight or nine, around about there. Don't you remember those times when your parents, particularly your mom, organized a birthday party for you? Baked all the stuff, special cake with a doll on top of it, or a ship, or a helicopter, or whatever it was? And invited all your friends. Set everything up, balloons and jellies and the whole bit. Can you remember those times? Nod if you can remember them. Difficult. difficult, but you can remember Okay. Now can you remember the anticipation and the excitement that you used to build up? I can. I can remember that getting ready for it and making sure that I was neat as a pin and so excited. This was my special day. These were my special friends. And wow, we are going to have a wonderful time. So see the scene. Your mom's prepared it all and she said okay dear, now your guests are about to arrive so I'm going through to the kitchen just shout if you need anything, otherwise go for it. And you wait your legs are literally shaking the door knocks, the first guest you go and you open it up and he has your very best friend, he's standing there with a big parcel under his arm the big smile on his face and you open the door and he runs right past you he just ignores you you run straight to the table, and he starts chowing your cake <laughs> and slurping your cool drinks and whatnot. And you, your jaw just drops, you've still got the door handle in your hand. The door is still open, and the second and the third guest arrive. And they just ignore you as well, totally. It's like you're invisible, they run right past you, and they go to the front, and your first guest, your best friend, says to them, Hi, welcome, come on in, have something to drink, have some cake, have a jelly. And the guests start pouring in, and every single one of them walks right past you as if you're not there. And then after a while, after they're all there, somebody says, let's sing Happy Birthday. And they even put your name into it. Happy Birthday, dear Christopher. And they don't even look at you. They're looking at each other, they're slapping each other on the back, they're wiping jelly off their mouths, and then they take those presents that were meant for you, and they pass it on to each other. They give each other your presents and they open it up and they have this incredible party and you just stand there, jaw hanging. Hmm. How would you feel if that actually happened? Terrible, right? Terrible. And I'm just wondering whether that doesn't describe quite well how Jesus must feel at the average Christmas lunch. We all come together, we slap each other... We give each other presents, we eat the jellies, we eat the cakes, we drink the fruit punch and all the rest of it, yet he's there. And I wonder how you feel sometimes at our Christmas Day services, when we come together and we sing and we enjoy each other's presents and we say, Happy Christmas to each other, and we shake each other's hands. But there's somebody who, although these eyes cannot see, is standing here, who's the guest who is the honoured person who has actually arranged the party. Now just extend the metaphor just for a little bit. What if in my imaginary birthday party you, the birthday girl or the birthday boy, actually had some stunning gifts to give to your guests. You had said, this year I'm going to give them presents. I'm going to give them the most precious, most wonderful, most awesome presents. But you couldn't do it because they didn't even acknowledge your presents. And afterwards, your mother caught them on their way out and said, Do you know what? Do you know what kind of gifts he or she had for you? But you missed out, because you did not acknowledge his presence. Let me take you to the Old Testament genesis of this little story. And then unpack it for you. It's a well-known story, but we're going to read it again. It's Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 to 19. It's all about Jacob's dream of a ladder that stretched to heaven. Genesis 28, verses 10-19 through Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. And when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you. And will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And when Jacob awoke from his dream, from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and he set it up as a pillar and he poured oil on top of it and he called that place Bethel, which means the house of God. Although the city used to be called Lutz. Let me repeat for you verses 16 and 17. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So what I did was I took that phrase, house of God, and I traced it through the scripture. I wanted to know what other things and places are given that description, that special title, as being the house of God. The first time I came across it after this Genesis account was in Judges chapter 18, verse 31. And it's used to describe the tent of meeting. The precursor to the tabernacle was called the tent of meeting. It was a simple tent placed right in the middle of the encampments of Israel when they camped in the wilderness. And Moses used to go into that tent to meet with God. When he did, the tent started to glow and shine as the Shekinah glory of God came into it. When Moses came out of the tent of meeting... His whole face was radiant and shining, for he had been in the very presence of God. That tent was called the house of God. Later, the tabernacle was developed, with all the accoutrements and all the things that were inside it. And that too was then referred to as the house of God. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 4, Jesus talks about how David went into the tabernacle and ate the, sacri- the, the, the consecrated bread. And he uses that expression of the tabernacle, the house of God. In 1 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 11, it's the temple in Jerusalem that's referred to as the house of God. You now you know how this worked. You had the tent of meeting, that became the tabernacle. The tabernacle was then developed and built into stone and gold and slate and silver In Jerusalem, as the temple. All three of them represented the presence of God. In the temple in Jerusalem, there was the Holy of Holies, right in the middle. A little 10 by 10 cubic meter space. And in that was the Ark of the Covenant, which looked like a throne. Its seat was called the Mercy Seat. Behind it had two great big carved angels with their wings touching to form the back of the throne. And their other two wings on the sides, like the arms. And... They believe that once a year, when the high priest went in there, God came and sat on that throne and met with them. That's why it was called the house of God. Then in John chapter 1 verse 51, Jesus does not refer to himself as the house of God. But he cites the Jacob incident. He uses these words. He says, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, on me. He's saying what Jacob saw. That's me. I am the house of God. I am the gateway to heaven. And then lastly, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 21, the term is applied to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me just define what I mean by church before I go any further. When I say church, I don't mean a denomination. I don't mean any one particular local church or brand of church. Wherever believers in Jesus Christ are gathered together, like right here, right now, today, this is the church. The church is defined as the gathered body of believers that regularly come together under the lordship of Jesus to worship, to minister, to hear the word, to fellowship, To build up and to go out and to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the church. The church is described in the scripture as the house of God. So, first of all, Jacob experienced God in his visionary encounter in Bethel. Later in the tabernacle, later in the temple, later in Jesus Christ himself. And then lastly, in the church. Now, by now it's quite obvious why these things and places and persons are called the house of God. But J- Jacob actually tells us in Genesis 28:16, he says, Surely the Lord is in this place. Wherever God's presence is manifest, that's the house of God. The place of His presence. Tabernacle, temple, church. When Jesus walked this earth, God was walking this earth. The temple was on earth. Now, it's to the church. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. The context and the words used in that passage are plural. It means us together. We are the temple. He's not talking about you or me individually. Paul is addressing the church and saying, church, don't you know that when you come together like this you constitute the temple of the Holy Spirit. God is really present among you when you come together under the hitch of Jesus. This is an incredibly important concept. It affects the way we pray. It affects the way we sing. It affects how we preach and how we listen to sermons. It affects our fellowship. It affects our witness into the world. If we truly believe what the Scripture has to say about this, that the gathered church is the house of God, the place of His presence, it has to affect the way we behave when we come into this place. It has to affect the way we sing, the way we talk, the way we preach, the way we listen, the way we minister. The way we pray. Back to Jacob. He refers to his encounter as the place, as the house of God. But he also calls it the gate of heaven. Gate of heaven. Old Testament scholars, old Jewish scholars of that time, regarded the temple in Jerusalem as the interface between heaven and earth. They said it's in the temple in Jerusalem that heaven comes to earth. So the temple for the old Jewish people was incredibly important. It wasn't just a building. It wasn't just a religious artifact. They saw it as the portal between heaven and earth. The place where they could encounter the living God. The gateway to heaven. Jesus Christ clearly regarded himself as the new temple. Remember he talked about the temple and said, You see these stones? But well, I tell you, not one of them will be laid upon each other. They will all be destroyed, as they were in 70 AD. And then he said, but I will raise up this temple in three days. He was again saying to us, to everybody who has an ear to listen, I am the temple. I am the gateway to heaven. I, the Lord Jesus Christ, I am a living temple. This will be destroyed. This shall not be. This shall last for eternity. That's why he said to Nathanael, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's such a clear statement. I am the house of God. I am the opening, the portal, the gate, the stairway, the interface to heaven. When the church meets, when every local church is constituted in the name of Jesus, we are the place of His presence and we are the gateway of heaven to earth. When we pray the Lord's Prayer and say, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we should be expecting it to happen through us. For we are the gateway from heaven to earth. We are the embodiment of Jesus on earth. We are the place of His presence, the house of God. How important a concept is this? How important is this to us to understand? How important for our nation? How important for the world to understand this? If the church truly becomes the place where God manifests His glory and His presence, this nation has to be changed. The world must change the power and the light and the truth of heaven just streams out through the church into the darkness of a fallen world if we understand who we are and what we are. Jacob said, surely the Lord is in this place. And then he said these terrible words. And I was not aware of it. So I want to ask, How aware are you and me? How aware are we when we come together Sunday after Sunday that we are constituting the house of God, that we are the gateway to heaven, that Jesus himself is truly present in this place? Are we aware of it? When we sing, are we just looking at words on the screen with admiring eyes flicking across at Paul from time to time and saying, boy, that boy can sing? Or are we looking beyond that and looking beyond that and saying, Lord Jesus, I'm singing to you. We find ourselves taking some of the words of these songs and converting them. And instead of singing about him, we put different words in there. We say, to you, O oh Lord, not about you. And we make it personal. Because we know that he's right here. When we pray... Are we praying with the knowledge and the belief that Jesus himself is standing in the front here, with his arms outstretched, saying, Here I am, my people. Talk to me. Talk to me. I'm here. If that's true, how could we ever come up with with these sort of religiosity type prayers? You know, the prayers with all the flurry words and that. Or how could we try and preach sermons over the shoulder of God? and call it prayer. Do you know what I mean by that? We use words like this. Oh Lord, our heavenly Father, please let us be more conscious of, which only means, please make sure my wife hears this. <laughs> or my husband, repeating these little sermonettes over God's shoulder and calling a prayer. Can we do that if we really believe that Jesus Himself is standing here saying, Here I am, talk with me. Tell me, where's your heart? What are you thinking? What are you fearing? Where's your joy? Where's your passion? Talk to me. When we listen to the preached word, do we listen just to the collective thoughts of a preacher? Me, Colin, Adam, whoever it is? Or do we believe that somehow mysteriously and wonderfully God has chosen to speak to us through his preached word? And we're listening not just to a man, but we're listening to the voice of God echoing through the words, penetrating our hearts and our lives. We have some preachers sitting here this morning, so I have a message for you preachers. When you and I preach, how aware are we that we are preaching with Jesus sitting in the seat? Oh boy. There's a man called Dr. A.J. Gordon. He was a 19th century Baptist preacher. And he wrote the following account. He says it was late one Saturday night... And he hadn't prepared his message yet. It had been a terrible week. And it was late, 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 and he was so tired, and he hadn't finished preparing for the sermon. And he was guilt-ridden, and he was thinking, what are my people going to think? I'm going to make a mess of this. This is, oh, I'm not sure about this. And he was trying so hard. And he fell asleep in the process of preparing his message at his desk. And when he fell asleep, he dreamed. One of those 3D technicolor dreams. And he records it. He said, I dreamt that I was about to deliver my sermon. I was standing in the pulpit. And as I was about to start, a man walked in. And he walked down the side. And one of my deacons stood up and made space for him. And he sat down. And I started to preach. And I found my eyes just kept going back to him. All the time, just going back to him. When I finished and said Amen, I pronounced the benediction. When I raised my head, I saw that that place was empty. He had left the building. So as soon as I could, I went over to my deacon and I said, Hey Al, who was that man that was sitting next to you? And my deacon said to me, Pastor, did you not recognize him? That was Jesus. And Dr. Gordon said, it was as if he was hit between the eyes with a pole. And he suddenly thought, oh my, what did he think of my sermon? He said it changed his life. From that moment onwards, he didn't care what people thought of his sermons, Because he stood Sunday after Sunday preaching with the knowledge that sitting there somewhere was the risen Lord listening to every word that he preached. In 1988, a man called David Maines wrote a book. And it's called The Sense of His Presence. It greatly impacted me and it's influenced today's message a lot. And in this book, he lists eight indicators of a successful church. If you want to know if your church is successful, tick these boxes, he wrote. Then at the end of it, he said, however, in the church, it's the presence of the Lord that is all important. We can tick all the boxes we like. There's one thing that makes a church really a church, is when we're aware of the presence of the Lord Jesus. He goes on, and talks about revival, and he defines revival as seasons where there is a fresh awareness of God's presence. And then he quotes Duncan Campbell. And Duncan Campbell was the Presbyterian minister who was involved in the great Lewis revival of 1948 in the Hebrides. Incredible, wonderful revival. And he was interviewed. And somebody said to him, Reverend Campbell, what were the outstanding features of the Lewis revival? And Campbell answered, first, an awareness of the presence of God. We've been praying for three years for revival in this church. So here's my question. How will we know when it's come? How will we know that perhaps it has already started? How will we know? Let me give you the following indicators of what I believe are the indicators of true revival. When Sunday after Sunday, not just once or twice, Sunday after Sunday, people come into this place to a service. And they sit and they weep. And you say to them, why are you crying? And they say, I don't know. I just know that God is here. God's here. I can't help but cry. It's not tears of sadness. They're tears of awe and love and joy because God is in this place. And during the times of worship, it doesn't take the minister or the duty elder to stand in the front and say, we're all going to stand now. It's all kneel. Ah, ah. People fall on their knees spontaneously because the presence of God is so tangible in this place that it seems the most natural and reasonable thing to do is to kneel before Him. Because God's here. And we're recognizing His presence. When an awful silence greets the preaching of the Word of God, because nobody wants to miss one single word of what's said, because God is speaking through the preacher. And we don't want to miss it. We want to soak it up and remember it and treasure it. When people come 15 minutes early, not 15 minutes late to a service, not to please the minister, the preacher who has berated them the Sunday before, but because their hearts are full of an excitement, They want to be here while the music group is still practicing. They want to be here just to pray and to say, Lord, Lord, what are you going to show of yourself today? I don't want to have to squeeze in the back. I want to come and sit right in the front because I want to be the first that reaches out to you, Lord. The first. When a consciousness grips the heart of those of us who are not in right alignment with Jesus, And the sin in our life is so identified by the Holy Spirit that we are convicted and know we must change. When we walk out of this place after a Sunday service saying, I'm going to be different. Things are never going to be the same again. God has spoken to me. And I'm going to respond. When even the most casual visitor to this place walks out of a service and you say to them, So how was it? And they say to you, well I didn't understand everything that happened and it's very different from the church of my youth. But God was here. I know he was here. And when lastly we cannot help but share this with others. When we can't stop ourselves from talking about it. We talk to others and say, you've got to know the presence of God as I do. I have to share it with you. It is just so incredibly precious. I've got to show. I've got to share it. Come, come. Let me take your hand. Let me introduce you first to Jesus and then bring you into the place of His presence when His people gather. Those are signs of revival. Now, if we believe what I've just preached, we need to act on it in some way. Jacob when he had this experience at Bethel, he didn't just say, well, that was very, very nice. I think I'll write a little bit for the Bible. Uh-uh. He took the stone. He set it up as a pillar. He anointed it. He renamed that place. And year after year after year, he led his people back to that place to remember and to worship. He did something. If we believe what I've just been preaching, we need to respond Otherwise, our faith, our belief is just dead. Just an intellectual curiosity. So, let me suggest at least the following, okay? One, how about coming early on Sundays? Yeah, imagine that. Come early. Fill this place with your presence on a Sunday. Start to pray. As the music group are practicing, just start to worship. Start to say, oh God, I expect your presence today. Come, O Lord, and speak into my heart. Secondly, sing with focus. Look beyond the words on the screen. In your minds I say, Lord, I know that you are present. And sing to Jesus, not just about him. Thirdly, when the worship leader or the duty elder creates the space in the services, they always do, be eager to share. Be eager to read out of scripture. Be eager to pray out loud. Because God is standing here. Christ Jesus is standing here saying, talk with me, my people. Be eager. My goodness, if we could see with these eyes Jesus standing here, do you think we're going to just sit there saying, oh, look at that. That's nice. We're going to be on our knees, we're going to be saying, oh, God, I want to talk with you. Look, here's my heart. Be eager people of the village church to grasp the opportunity of speaking to the Lord in prayer. And then share with others. Witness to others. Tell them about your experience of Jesus. And take them by the hand and bring them into this place. So come. Come with me into the house of the Lord. Come to the very gateway to heaven. Come and meet Jesus with me. And let's worship Him together. So, I want to end by adopting Jacob's words. I want to make them my own and then I want to invite you as I repeat them. Maybe you'd like to repeat them out aloud or or silently as you choose. But these are the words. I have awoken from my sleep and I say, surely the Lord is in this place and I am aware of it. How awesome is this place. It is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Surely the Lord is in this place and I am aware of it. How awesome is this place. It is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Surely the Lord is in this place and I am aware of it. How awesome is this place. It is none other than the house of God. It is the gate of heaven. Oh Lord, what a wonderful privileged people we are that we can come and gather together and know that you are in this place. That together we constitute a temple that rises up with prayer and worship and adoration and is filled with your presence and your spirit. What a privileged people we are. And as we come now, Lord Jesus, to sing to you and to talk with you and to share about who you are in our lives. Holy Spirit, come and orchestrate us that we will be a people of praise and worship in this place, this house of God, this gateway to heaven. Be glorified, be magnified in this place. Be raised up, open the eyes of our heart Lord we want to see Jesus to reach out and touch you and say that we love you oh open our lips Lord and our hearts and our minds and help us to speak with you and to sing to you and to adore you open our eyes Lord We want to see Jesus. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus.